So Isaiah 9, verse 6 is where we're at, and we're looking really at the end of the verse. I'll go ahead and read the verse. Uh, it's a familiar verse to us, but we're looking at the four names of the coming king. That is the title for our message, the four names of the coming king. Isaiah 9, verse 6 says this, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. When, uh, when Anita and I were talking about names for our kids, uh, I was not the winner when it came to choosing the names. If you like the names of our kids, it's because of my wife. Uh, if you would have preferred something like Buddy, <laughs> Buddy Biedebach, or Betty, Buddy and Betty Biedebach, uh, those would have been my choices. Those were my suggestions. Um, I liked Brock. It's a man's name. Brock Biedebach. Just like, I mean, it's a linebacker's name, right? Um, Bradley was born in Johannesburg. Johann's a common name there, so I was thinking Johann Sebastian Biedebach. <laughs> it's got a nice ring, doesn't it? I mean, a little bit of pressure there, but I think, I think, uh, yeah, my names didn't win out. When we lived in Malawi, Uh, what we learned is that oftentimes people chose names based on what was going on in their family at that time. I met several young men named Mavuto. Mavuto means trouble. Who names their son trouble? Right, Uh uh-oh, here comes trouble, right? I mean, it's like... But but when I would ask them, they would say, no, no, that's not what it means. It's not that they thought I was trouble. It's that my family was going through a very difficult time and they wanted to remember that, they, that was what was going on, and so they chose my name as Trouble because we were going through a very troubled time when I was born. Um, if that had been the practice during Isaiah's time, there would have been lots of Hebrew children named Trouble because Isaiah prophesied during a time in Israel's history that was rife with trouble. It was a dark period of Israel's history. Imagine if you were... Um, Uh, You know, during that time, it was a divided kingdom, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, just to try and and help us to relate to that. Just imagine that California were a nation, all right? I know it's not hard to imagine for some people because we're the Republic of California, but uh, uh, if California were a nation and it it were divided and it had two presidents uh, of NorCal and SoCal, so those are the two countries now divided within one nation, uh, that was similar to what you would call the northern kingdom, Israel, Ephraim, and the southern kingdom, Judah, where Jerusalem was. And so uh, when you think of the northern kingdom, capital being Samaria, you have, um, they didn't get along with the southern kingdom. So just imagine that the northern kingdom, the northern California hated southern California, and they brought their army down to Bakersfield, and they camped out there threatening to invade Los Angeles. And as help, they brought down a whole army from Canada. They got all of Canada's, uh, which, you know, they're not all on horseback. I mean, they have, they, have, they have, you know, the Mounties still have that picture. But, I mean, the armies, I mean, the Canadian army is nothing, you know, I want to mess with. So let's just imagine they're, they're, they're there. They're, in, they're lined up, and they're threatening to invade. 
Um, and it seems far-fetched, but um, that was the situation for Judah. And uh, there, there, was a, there was a lot of fear. You can imagine what it would be like if nations did invade us from the north and destroyed all that you have and chased you from your home and kill many of you and take some of you away to be slaves and then leave some without their families or food or anything and then import people from other nations to come and populate and take over what was productive in the land prior to you being there. It would be devastating to think about that, and it would be a frightful experience. And that was the kind of time that Judah, the southern kingdom, was experiencing when Isaiah was the prophet of God. Isaiah spent much of his time prophesying about the suffering that Judah would experience if they didn't turn to God. But in spite of their disobedience to God, Isaiah also promised hope. God promised hope through the prophet Isaiah to the southern kingdom. Um, In fact, Isaiah even named his son Sher Jashub, which means a remnant shall return. So no matter how bad it gets, Isaiah named his son that, hey, there will be a remnant and they will return here to the land. Um, And so as we look at today's message and we think about these names of the coming king, it really is a message about hope. In spite of what circumstances around you might be looking like, this is a message of hope. In fact, um, if you look at Isaiah chapter 9, verses 3 and 4, you'll see several analogies that are used to describe the types of joy that should be expressed at the news of this great hope. There will be a time of joy like harvest time. Take a look at uh, chapter 9, verse 3. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence with, with the gladness of harvest. So you think about a great year for crops and all the grain coming in and and people rejoicing. And it's that kind of rejoicing you should have with the news from Yahweh. Uh, There should be um, joy like there is when a nation wins a battle. Also in verse 3, it says, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. So they conquer a land, they get all of the the goods and the booty, and they they bring all that back, and they just divide it among everyone, all the gold and wealth and riches, and and it's the nation rejoices. We won the battle. Um, Like there is when a slave is set free, verse 4, for you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. And there we have this idea not only of being free from slavery, but there's a reminder of what it must have felt like to win the battle of Midian. Do you remember Midian? Rhymes with Gideon. Gideon, Judges chapter 7. Uh, Gideon went with a, a, an army to go fight the Midianites. 32,000 men were there to fight, and God said, that's too many. And so send home all who are fearful, and 22,000 left. So they had 10,000 to defeat the mighty Midianites, and God said, it's still too much. And so he sent them to a brook. And he had them drink. And remember, those who lapped it up like a dog, those ones were the ones who were going to be the fighters. And those who, um, who didn't lap it up like a dog, those are the ones who were going to go home. 9,700 went home. So there were 300 left. And God defeated the Midianites using those 300 men. It was a testimony, a testimony that God is the one who brings about the victory that nobody could credit those 300 men with the victory. It was God who did it, and he was demonstrating it by by taking unbelievable odds and saying, I have decreed it will be so, and it will be so no matter what. 
and lead that into another surprising uh, uh, future event. If you, if you think about the fact, verse 6, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. What is more surprising than the defeat of the Midianites and the joy that is there than when a son is given to us, a child, a baby is given to us who will rule the world, who will rule the world. And the last part of this verse, we learn these four names of the coming king that really should bring peace and hope to you no matter what the circumstances are like around you. The first name is Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor. He, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. The Hebrew word translated wonderful means a wonder. It has the idea of being astonishingly unique. Jesus is the wonderful counselor because his counselor is unique in an astonishing way. His words, the wonderful counselor's words, gives the best counsel ever spoken because it is God's counsel. Jesus' thoughts, Christ's thoughts, his desires, his words of wisdom are God's thoughts, God's desires, God's words of wisdom. And throughout the book of Isaiah, the prophet continually emphasized the foolish of human wisdom compared to God's wisdom. That's one of the themes that weaves its way through the book. If you look at Isaiah chapter 5, verse 21, he says, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. And over in Isaiah chapter 19, verses 11 and 12, um, Isaiah refers back to the Egyptian wise men who were giving advice to the Pharaoh and points out how foolish they were because they had no idea what Yahweh was going to do. So how could anything they say be wise? Isaiah 19.11, the princes of Zoan are mere fools. The advice of Pharaoh's wisest advisors has become stupid. How can you say, men of men to Pharaoh, how can you men say to Pharaoh, I am a son of the wise. I'm the son of an ancient king. Well then, where are your wise men? Please let them tell you and let them understand what the Lord, what Yahweh of hosts has purposed against Egypt. If you don't know God's wisdom, it doesn't matter what your IQ is. It doesn't matter what your heritage is. It doesn't matter what your education is. If you don't have God's wisdom, you are a fool when it comes to future events. The Hebrew word for counselor also has this idea of planner, makes plans for the future. And Christ is a wonderful counselor because he advises in the way that we should go. And his plans are in 100% accordance with God's plan. It's significant because in the context of Isaiah chapter 9, we have a situation where the king of the southern kingdom, Ahaz, is not in accordance with God's wisdom. He's not relying on God's wisdom whatsoever. If you turn back to Isaiah chapter 7, and you look at verse, verses 3 through 9, we have, this is Isaiah's first recorded preaching mission. Uh, Isaiah went to King Ahaz of Judah, king of the southern kingdom there, and he's going to offer them an opportunity to believe and to be saved. It says in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 3, Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go now, go out now to meet Ahaz, you and your son Shear Jashub, right? A remnant will return, right? 
at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field and say to him, take care and be calm, have no fear and do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands. Who are these two stubs? These two stubs are the king of the northern kingdom, Israel, and the king of Syria, the nation that Israel had brought in, the northern kingdom, to threaten and attack the southern kingdom. So this is NorCal and Canada, right? These are these two, and he calls them what? Smoldering firebrands. They're just blowing a bunch of smoke. They're not really going to erupt. They may look like they're going to erupt and cause destruction, but pay no attention to them. They're just blowing smoke. They will not be able to invade you. They will not be able to harm you. And he says in in, uh, verse 4 again, Take care and be calm. Have no fear and do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands on account of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram. That that would be the... uh, um, the Syrians, and then the son of Remaliah, that's Israel, because Aram with Ephraim, so Syria and Israel, the northern kingdom, and the son of Remaliah has planned evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah, that's the southern kingdom, and terrorize it and make for ourselves a breach in its walls and set up the the son of Tabil as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand nor shall it come to pass. So Isaiah, his first preaching assignment, don't worry about those two guys saying they're going to invade. It's not going to happen. You can trust God. It's pretty good news. Verse 8, for the head of Aram is Damascus and the head of Damascus is resin. Now with another 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered so that it is no longer a people. So he's saying the head of Syria is Damascus. Don't worry about it. It's going to be destroyed. It's a strong nation now but it won't be long before it's destroyed. Same thing with Ephraim in the north, with Israel in the north. It may seem like it's a mighty army. It will be destroyed. This is a prophecy from Yahweh, okay? And verse nine, and the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you will not believe, you surely shall not last. So he says, hey, the head of Israel, of Ephraim, that northern kingdom, your brothers, the divided kingdom, the Jews in the north, Their head is Samaria, but it will not last. But if you don't believe this, it's going to be bad for you. So this is is the prophecy that Isaiah gave to King Ahaz. Ahaz has two options. He's 26 years old at this time, and he has two options. Trust in God and his word, and don't worry about those two nations to the north. That would be one option, to do exactly what Isaiah tells him to do. Or... Don't believe in God's word and get crushed. These are your options. Isaiah had a tough first preaching assignment to go to his, the king of the southern kingdom and tell him, believe God and live or don't believe and die. Verses 10 and 11, we find out more because not only was Ahaz given the opportunity to believe the Lord, but he was given the opportunity to ask God for any sign that he wanted. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 10, Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask for a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. And so, I mean, this is pretty great. I mean, what are you going to do? I mean, you know, we're not yet in, in a period here where there are no more sign gifts. Isaiah's a prophet from God. He's offering them a sign. What do you want? You want me to throw my staff down? 
Turn into a snake, pick it up. You want me to do the leprosy hand thing? That's my favorite, right? Look at this. What do you want? Tell me what you want. You want the sun to go dark? I mean, name it. Ahaz decided not to trust God. And it's evident in his response, even though it's not so clear to us as we read it, but it's clear from the context that even though he used words to say no, these words were considered to be arrogant and self-righteous. He says in verse 12, Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. So it sounds like, I'm so humble. I'm not going to ask for a sign. Uh, Deuteronomy says, don't test the Lord. So Deuteronomy 6.16, I'm not going to do that. One commentator says he hid himself hypocritically under the mask of Deuteronomy 6 verse 16 to avoid being disturbed in his Assyrian policy. Uh, So what he wanted to do, this is his idea. This is Ahaz's big idea. Instead of trusting the word of God and doing nothing, his idea was to go get Assyria, a different nation, over to the east of Syria and make a deal with them and ask them to come in and wipe out Syria and uh, Israel in the north and fight the battle on behalf of Judea, the southern kingdom. So he was not putting his trust in the Lord. He was putting his trust in the king of Assyria. And um, another commentator has written this, because Ahaz did not accept the offer of God's grace, he will not escape his punishment. And therefore, this is also a true sign, a proof permeating the whole of subsequent history that the sinner does not escape punishment and God's word prevails. So the king there, King Ahaz, decides to send for us to Assyria for help. That whole account is recorded, if you want to read it, at another time in 2 Kings chapter 16. Uh, verse 7 is where he sends to Assyria for help. And the Assyrian king was only too glad to respond. He took that upper Galilean region into captivity He firmly sacked the capital of the northern kingdom, Samaria, in 722 BC. Remember, Isaiah lived about 700 years before Christ. And so at the same time, Assyria took Israel's most capable men into captivity. So Assyria gains all this wealth and power and strength by fulfilling, by by doing what Ahaz wanted him to do. And Ahaz, for a moment, The people rejoiced. Hey, this threat isn't there. But Isaiah is preaching in the southern kingdom saying, you did it wrong. You're trusting in your own strength, in your own wisdom. You're not relying on the Lord and his wisdom. Um, And so Isaiah says, fine, you don't want a sign? God's going to give you a sign. Take a look at verses 13 and 14. He says, then he said to him, listen now, O house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and will bear a son and she will call his name Emmanuel. El being the Hebrew word for God. Emmanuel is God with us. There will be a child who is born and that is God with us. This is the same child that we read about in our passage uh, who will be called Wonderful Counselor, 
uh, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But Ahaz is an example of someone who was caught up with his own plan, rejected the greatest counsel he could have ever received. And before we get too judgmental at Ahaz for not listening to God, how common is it for us to think about our own wisdom? We live in a world that wants to live by human wisdom and does not value God's wisdom. And so whether we're tempted to sin, whether we're tempted to take pride in ourselves, somebody was asking me uh, even uh, this morning, we were talking beforehand, and, and uh, I, I gave that message on Thanksgiving uh, a couple of weeks ago, three or four weeks ago now, and, uh, and they were asking about, you know, uh, what about ambition? What about if, if we're to be thankful all the time, how does that affect wanting to do better? in life. And, 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 and um, I said, let's not confuse gratitude with uh, uh, an attitude of just neglect or no care. It, it's not, gratitude is not something where we say, well, God ordained this, so be it, right? Que sera, sera. Uh, gratitude can be in conjunction with other emotions. There is sorrow which is a legitimate emotion that you can have at the same time while being thankful. You can have a godly sorrow, 2 Corinthians 7 teaches us, that leads to repentance. You can have a sorrow that is, that is, uh, that is as Jesus wept, as, as Jesus longed to be with the lost sheep of Israel. Um, you have that kind of sorrow that, over things that happen in the world but it is a godly sorrow, and it never leads to despair. Despair is always sin. Despair is a hopelessness. But sorrow can, can be expressed in a godly way. Um, so, there, so you can have emotion, and, and godly a sorrow will have a sense of gratitude with it. Lord, thank you for bringing me through this trial. Help me to see reasons to be thankful. Help me, teach me what you want me to learn. Humble me. It doesn't mean that we don't uh, try to get better or do things with excellence, though. Um, but we don't experience what the world experiences when it has worldly ambition or selfish ambition. It's not like we're climbing some corporate ladder. We're trying to get ahead and on top and all this. Our only ambition is to glorify the name of the Lord, to lift up his name, no matter what that means for us. So however we can lift up his name, that's what we do. So we do things with excellence. We move on after difficult times, but we do it to magnify the name of the Lord, not to build some sort of um, name for ourselves or some sort of status. And so when we think about um, truly submitting to wonderful counselor, we have so much more than Ahaz had. We know who the wonderful, we know who this child Emmanuel is. We have it recorded here. And we saw him come at his first advent, and we look forward to his future advent. So I think the attraction from this world to lure us away from having a right priority and try to be the captain of our own destiny 
is a trap, and it's something we need to avoid, and we could be just as guilty as Ahaz in thinking about our own wisdom instead of relying upon the Lord. How can you have any better counselor than God himself? who created you, who knows everything from eternity past and eternity future and sees it from an eternal perspective. I'm going to move on to the next name, but I'll just pause for a moment. Are there any questions about the wonderful counselor? Okay, we'll have time for questions at the end, so if you have them, just save them. Um, We're going to go a little bit more quickly through these uh, other titles, but we have the second title given is Mighty God. Odd name for a child. What's your child's name? Mighty God. In Hebrew, it has that same root L as in Emmanuel. It's actually El Gabor. Gabor is a word I'll never get out of my mind. Uh, And for Hebrew students who are here, I'll stick it into your mind too because um, Dr. Zimmick, who used to teach here, uh, would always say, Gabor, Gabor, because it means manly man. Gabor, and it just sounds like a manly man. Gabor, I, I don't know. I got nothing for you, but Gabor. It's, it means might, masculinity, strength. It's used to speak of men, a man's man, a Gabor. That's the best I can do. I'm trying to stick it in there. But here's what's, here's what's important. Whenever this word is used with the noun El, the name for God, it refers to the singular, the absolute, the almighty God. The same word, the same phrase, El Gabor, is used in Isaiah 10, verse 21, where it says, a remnant will return the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. And so this is the God who is all-powerful. It seems odd to us that someone might name their child Mighty God until you realize that Jesus is God. This is, the, this is what... The cults try to diminish. Oh, Jesus, he was just a good teacher. Don't patronize me. Don't try and look for some common ground that you believe in Jesus as a good teacher. Jesus is God. If you do not believe he's God, then he was a terrible teacher. If I told you I was God, would you say, oh yeah, he has a little bit of a God complex, but he's a really good teacher. You would say he's a loon. Jesus declared to be God and Jesus is God, and Jesus was recognized as God. We read in Colossians 2.19, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him, speaking of Christ. When we celebrate Christ's birth, we celebrate the birth of someone who claimed to be God. John chapter 8, verse 58. Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I love, I love the, one of my favorite passages in John chapter 20, when Jesus was with the 10. Remember, Judas was gone, and we don't know where Thomas was, but Thomas was gone, and Jesus had appeared to them, uh, the 10, alone in that room. And then Thomas comes back and they tell Thomas. And what does Thomas say? I will not believe unless I stick my hands here in his hand or my hand here in his side. And then Jesus appears to Thomas and he says, Thomas, 
put your hand here and put it in my hand and put your hand here and put it in my side. And does Thomas do that? No. He falls before him and he cries out, my Lord and my God. And either Jesus is God or he's a heretic because he allowed himself to be worshiped as God. And only an idolater would do that if he's not really God. Jesus claimed to be God, was recognized as God, and is indeed the mighty God, which is why Isaiah prophesied that his name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. Wonderful counselor, mighty God. The third title given to this child to be born is Everlasting Father. Everlasting Father. Again, kind of a unique name. What's your baby's name? Father. He's your son, right? Yes, I'm his father. What's his name? Father. Uh, I, I once met a lady in South Africa whose real name, given by her parents, was Grandma. And she was elderly. And I asked her about what was it like to grow up with the name Grandma. She goes, yeah, it, it, it was kind of difficult. People, you know, called her Grandma. But anyways, um, fits her now, though. It's, she's well-suited. Um, So it seems odd that in Isaiah 9, 6, the term father is used because it also says in Isaiah 9, 6, take a look at it, that a son will be given to us. And this son is a father, but he is an everlasting father. And that's something else we haven't heard of. We know what fathers are like, but imagine a father who is a wonderful counselor, who is the mighty God, who is great and good and all-powerful and who is here forever. You will never lose him. He's the everlasting Father. What's amazing about this title is that when the Jews heard Jesus talk about his relationship with God the Father, they tended to get hung up on that word Father. Remember in John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus said, I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, many good works have I shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him saying, for a good work, we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. He was clear, wasn't he? His enemies understood who he claimed to be, and they wanted to kill him for it. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? So while there was much confusion even in Christ's day about his relationship with the Father, think about the fact that 700 years prior to that was prophesied that Jesus would be the everlasting Father, that a child, a son, would be the everlasting 
father and how much more anger and confusion it would have brought to Isaiah's listeners. For those who did understand that this was a title of the Messiah, the future one, it would have been a great comfort because when the Messiah comes and reigns and rules because he's an everlasting father and because he's also the mighty God and because he's also a wonderful counselor, his kingdom will never fail. It is forever. Jesus Christ, whose life we celebrate, his coming, his first advent, is this wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father. And if he's known by those titles, how could he not be known by the fourth title that Isaiah mentions, and that is the Prince of Peace? The word shalom is here, but the Prince of Peace. Um, it's, the Messiah would be uh, a prince who removes all, all peace-disturbing powers. And this is clear from verse 7. Take a look at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, which says, There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Zechariah 9, verse 10 is another verse that we should read when thinking about the Prince of Peace. Zechariah 9, verse 10 says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off and shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. So the question is, when you come to this passage and you you hear about and we think about the coming of the birth of Christ, which which in and of itself, you know, um, we are memorializing the birth of Christ. We're celebrating it, even though the Scripture never tells us to do this on an annual basis. It's not wrong. I remember the first, the first, first time I started pastoring, I came from Grace Church. And, you know, what, there's like a thousand poinsettias and trees and ribbons and, and you know, it's... They decked the halls here, right? And I came to my first church, and it was a group of people who kind of had been burned by their previous churches. We, about a third of the church were out of the Dutch Reformed Church, where they had kind of learned that some of their elders weren't even saved. And about a third of the church were from, I, I call them the rejects out of the charismatic church because they couldn't speak in tongues, and they were told they weren't real Christians. And so they came to our church. Uh, and then we had some new believers, but these first two groups felt, had a bitter taste in their mouth from the church that was unbiblical and made them feel like second-class citizens just because they wanted to believe what the Bible said. One of, one of them said he went to his pastor and was concerned about one of the elders because the elder could not communicate the gospel. And he was concerned that maybe the elder was not saved. And his pastor looked at him and says, how can you say he's not saved? He's a child of the covenant. He was baptized into our church as a baby. So this is kind of thing that was going on in South Africa at the time. And so these people, so I come in as this TMS graduate, you know, who's like, uh, woohoo, and, and uh, uh, you know, and, and I get there in July. And around September, some of the guys in the church say, hey, you know, it'd be a good time for you to take a, a vacation in uh, December. 
we kind of just close the doors. Everybody goes to the coast anyway. Johannesburg kind of shuts down for a month, and you know, we, you you don't need to be here around Christmas time. I'm like, Christmas time? Oh, uh, and and then they had a guy come to me and says, you know, Christmas is a pagan holiday. You know, it's a pagan holiday. It's the 25th was actually Saturnalia, and, and the Christians redeemed it, and they tried to make it a Christian one, but it's not the birth of Christ. It was a pagan Roman holiday to the goddess of fertility. What do you think the tree's for? So as a young, strong pastor, I heeded their counsel, and I took off. I took a vacation. Hey, you tell me if I take a vacation, I'll take a vacation. I wasn't going to fight that battle my first year. Um, and I remember um, uh, thinking that, you know, it, the next year I started earlier and I started with messages, is it wrong to memorialize the birth of Christ? You know, to this day, no one has ever walked into my house and seen a Christmas tree and said, do you worship the fertility goddess Saturnalia? I mean, so there's just no association. There's no connection. Um, and Throughout history, Christians have redeemed lots of pagan things and used it as an opportunity to celebrate Christ. The question I have is, is it wrong to celebrate the birth of Christ? No. In fact, it would be wrong. I mean, we celebrate it every day. We celebrate his coming and his future coming, his death, his burial, his resurrection. We celebrate Christ. So if there's one day that the world gives us to do what we do every day, let's do it, and let's do it in a big way, poinsettias and all. So uh, that, that's, that, and the second year and the third year, and then we started having Christmas Day services, and it was really neat to see the church grow through that. Um, but I think about this, and I think about peace, and I think about that we're here in a world that is not experiencing peace, and we tell them the Prince of Peace has come, but we're forgetting the fact that the world will not know peace until he comes again. And, and so even though he has come and he is the Prince of Peace, I mean, does Palestine look like a place of peace to you today? You know, uh, since 1947, when the UN adopted the resolution that made it uh, both Arab and Jewish states, and war broke out, that's 47, war broke out in 48, right? Through 49, and then again, there were major outbreaks in, in 56, 67, 87, 2000 to 2005, 2014, 2018, even within the past two years, there have been hundreds of deaths in conflict in that land. So even after 2,000 years since the birth, the first coming of the Prince of Peace, where is this Prince of Peace, the everlasting Father? And I think this is something that we understand that they didn't quite understand. It was part of the confusion for the first church because they expected him to come in and establish the peace and overcome everything. But we know that there will be a time because, and part of the reason we know that is you think of all the prophecies that have come true about the Messiah and everything that we've seen, even the fact that in this own book that we've studied today, long before Assyria was even a thought for Syria and Israel, God prophesied through Isaiah that Assyria would come in and wipe them out. Isaiah told them, before my son learns how to speak, Assyria will come in here and wipe you out. So these future prophecies all throughout the Old Testament, we see it again and again in Isaiah. 
And we have this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 11. This is talking about that future time of peace. Isaiah chapter 11, let's read verses 1 through 10. It says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Remember, Jesse is the father of David. David is the one whose kingdom was promised an everlasting kingdom, the Davidic covenant. But it says, verse 2 of chapter 11, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will, by the way, in verse 2, we have the Trinity right there. We have the spirit, we have Christ, and we have Yahweh. Verse 3, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. So he's not going to judge like normal judges do by just what they see and hear. He will know because in verse 4, with the righteousness he will judge, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted on the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness, the belt about his, about his waist, and the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf with the young, and the young lion and the fatling together, and the little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like an ox, and the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den, and they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea." That's the day. That's this future day when the world will know peace because the prince of peace will be ruling. And that's described for us in Revelation chapter 19 and Revelation chapter 20. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, it says, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Chapter 20 of Revelation speaks of this time as well when Christ returns and puts in, a, and Satan is bound, and there's a thousand year time where, the, where Christ rules. So, all this we wrap together thinking about all that's going on around us and, and all the chaos in our lives and the difficult times uh, and the good times, but we as Christians should have hope because of Christ. Not only what was prophesied that he would do, but also what he has done and what he will do. Christ came and lived a perfect life and he didn't have to die, and yet he allowed himself to be crucified so that those who would repent of their sins and turn and trust in his righteousness, then therefore, according to Romans chapter 4, his righteousness would be taken out of his account and placed into your account, and your sin would be taken out of your account and placed into his account where he would pay for it in full on the cross so that when God looks at you, he doesn't see the sinner that you are, Rather, he sees someone who is righteous, holy, just like Jesus. His first coming was all about redemption. 
his second coming, he will rule in might. And there will be peace, not only the kind of peace that we have in our hearts now, but we can have a peace that the world cannot understand because we know who the Prince of Peace is and what he will do. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1 says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and a deep darkness the people, but the Lord will arise over you, and his glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Let me pause here before we close in prayer and say, we have about seven minutes left. Are there any questions? Yes. Uh, yeah, the, the, the preexistence of Christ is, would be found there, but also um, Ephesians chapter 1 would probably be clearer um, before the foundation of the world, and we have the, all the Trinity in Ephesians chapter 1 as well. So that would probably be the first place I would go to, yeah. Other questions? All right. Well, I'm around, and um, did you have a question? No. No, no, no. No, please, no. I was just, I was just scratching. All right. Um, uh, we have a few minutes to fellowship together. Remember, next week we're gathering together. It's going to be purely a time of fellowship. Uh, we'll be here, and uh, we'll br- have a potluck breakfast, and then go worship at the second service together. So let me close in prayer. We come before you, Father, and we thank you for your goodness. We thank you, Lord, for um, your word. And as we think about all the background here in Isaiah and all that was going on and what they were experiencing and how foolish it was for Ahaz and others to reject your word, Lord, we know that we're prone to wander as well. So grab a hold of our lives and our hearts. And if there's anyone who hears this message who has been living by their own wisdom and never submitted to you, I pray that this day they would repent and turn and trust in you and give their lives to you and live by God's wisdom and not by man's wisdom. And for those of us who know you, help us not only to trust more in God's wisdom, but to live lives that are so different from the way that this world lives so that others might see we have trust in the one who is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God the eternal Father, the Prince of Peace. And now may the Lord of Peace himself give us peace always in everywhere, in every way. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with all of us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys.